Welcome to the Fire These Times, I'm your host Joey Ayoub. If you'd like to support this podcast as well as other projects, please head out to patreon.com slash times or check out the support page for other methods. If you cannot donate, you can still support this podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and stay safe out there. So this is the last episode of 2020 and it's not an original episode. It's actually a recording of a web panel that I had with uh, fellow co-authors of the book A Region in Revolt, Mapping the Recent Uprisings in North Africa and West Asia, edited by Jad Saab. So the panel covered the five countries that are covered in the book. Uh, for Sudan, we had Sarah Abbas, for Algeria, Selma Omari, for Lebanon, myself and Jad Saab, the editor, for Iraq, Zaydon Al-Kinani, and for Iran, uh, Frida Afari. The book covers the 2019 uprisings across the region as I said, focusing on these five countries, Sudan, Algeria, Iraq, Lebanon, and Iran. So as the book summary explains, we deal with these five countries as having similarities and differences. You know, the mass protests in Algeria, Sudan, Iraq, Lebanon, and Iran had much in common, from opposing authoritarian regimes and worsening economic situations to demanding radical changes in social relations. But despite these similarities, each protest movement operated under different conditions that cannot be ignored. The specific historic, political, and economic context of each country have determined who the key actors of the uprisings are and their location across old and new divides. So I'm pleased to say that the book has been pretty well reviewed so far. We've had good reviews by Haifa Zangana, Gilbert Ashar, and Adam Haniyeh, which are also featured at the back of the book. And yeah, that's so that the conversation is about that. The conversation is about the book itself. If you're interested in either of the five countries or in the region in general, I think you'll find this an interesting conversation. And I will end by saying as well that this book would not have been possible without the Raja Press and the Transnational Institute. So that's it from me, folks. We'll be back in mid-January 2021. Uh, I would also like to take this opportunity to thank the 35 patrons on patreon.com slash times. This project honestly wouldn't be possible without you, so thank you a lot for that. Wherever you are in the world, please stay safe. This has been a very difficult year, to put it very mildly. I can promise you that at least on my side, I will continue doing my best to engage in these very difficult yet important conversations in the year to come. Take care, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be. This is Firoz Manji from Daraja Press. Uh, welcome to the launch of A Region in Revolt, mapping the recent uprisings in North Africa and West, West Asia. This is a recently published book and has already uh, had uh, um, people write wonderful uh, um recommendations are on it. Uh, for example, Haifa Zangana writes, it's an insightful, timely analysis of the uprisings in Sudan, Algeria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Iran. And uh, Gilbert Ashka writes, whereas there's a plethora of books on the 2011 upsurge, this book is the only comprehensive overview of the second wave of revolt which is here analyzed from the standpoint of the popular struggle. 
and Adam Hanier uh, writes a rich and informed account of the popular uprisings uh, that have emerged uh, across the Middle East and in recent years. I would like you to, to, to welcome our, our, our guests. Uh, today, uh, we have not all the contributors to, to uh, um, the, the, the book, but, but many of them. And so let me quickly introduce uh, the, uh, the, 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 the people who will be speaking today. Um, the editor of this book is uh, Jade Saab, uh, who wrote on 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 Lebanon uh, uh, as well, and um, he is a Lebanese Canadian uh, writer and and activist. Uh, we have Sarah Abbas uh, from Sudan, uh, doing a doctoral can as a doctoral candidate in political science at the Free University of Berlin. Selma Omari from uh, Algeria, French Algerian, a member of the new anti-capitalist uh, party. I'm sure there will be a lot of interest in learning what the anti-capitalist, the new anti-capitalist party uh, is all about. Zaydan Al-Kanani uh, uh, will be speaking about Iraq, uh, independent Iraqi Swedish political researcher and analyst specializing in geopolitics. We will have Joey Ayoub, uh, who will be the main speaker on, on the Lebanon uh, chapter. He is a Lebanese-Palestinian scholar, activist, and writer. And uh, finally, we, we will have uh, uh, Freda Efari uh, talking about uh, Iran. She's a, a librarian, translator, pr uh, producer of the Iranian Progressives in Translation, and co-founder of the Alliance of Middle Eastern and North African uh, Socialists. And I think that's quite an important uh, uh, um, thing to mention because I think this book has its origins in the discussions uh, within that, uh, that alliance. So I'd like to welcome all of you. Welcome to the show. Uh, and I, I look forward to, to, to hearing what you have to say. Um, Jade, uh, Jade Sub, let's start, uh, let's start with, um, with you. Uh, why, why, why did you think it was necessary to produce this book? What was behind it? Yeah, thanks for that, Feroz. Uh, it, it was quite a bit of a journey, actually, and, and it started bef you know, before the idea of the book, there was the Lebanese uprising, which, you know, we write about in the book. And that led me on to, to searching out people with similar viewpoints or similar ideas on what is happening in the region as a whole. Lebanon was the, the third, if not the fourth, in a series of new uprisings in the region. Uh, so I was seeking out voices, you know, to, who are covering events in other countries to get a more regional perspective of what was happening. Uh, through that, by by happenstance, I stumbled across the alliance uh, of Middle Eastern and North African socialists. Uh, I had a chat with Frida and uh, just started to familiarize myself with the works of the network. Uh, and I realized that this is just a great opportunity to bring people together to write about this in a timely manner as it was still unfolding at the time. So that's kind of the narrative aspect of how this project came to be. The other one was bringing a perspective that is quite different as to how the first wave of protests were covered back in 2010 and 2011, and bringing in really focusing on the movements themselves. What are their aspirations? What are their limitations? And analyzing them. 
beyond kind of the coverage we had before on you know the role of social media or breaking it down to, to simple things that made it seem that these uprisings are ahistorical or spontaneous. Um, so we wanted to give every country its due in terms of the history of its struggles, as well as the movements on the ground and what their possibilities and potentials are. So, um, but just quickly before before we, we we move on to listen to to one of the other speakers, um, what? How did you avoid what is so common in these uh, books about these struggles? Is is that that orientalist lens? What? what how? How did you conceive of avoiding that that trap? Yeah, that's definitely a big one, and I think. You know, we have to give credit here to all the writers. I mean, that's what makes this, you know, the work that it is. All of us are very active in the regions and the countries we've written about. So we have that, you know, insight to begin with. And the second is letting the movements speak for themselves. You know, by giving this long view historical analysis at the, at the beginning of each chapter or each section of the book, you, you allow people to see the complexity within each country and the, the history and the struggles of each country. You, you give it life in a sense. And then by focusing on the main actors of the movement as opposed to geopolitics, which is something that the region is, is many times reduced to as power struggles between East and West and that kind of lens, uh, just giving the space for the movements themselves, for the different actors, uh, be it labor, be it women's struggles, uh, be it minorities. Uh, so giving that depth in in a, in a accessible way still is the way I think we, we were able to avoid that. I mean, one of the striking things about the way in which you put together the book, uh, what is the fact that each chapter begins, and it's very unusual, begins with a table of, of key events which go back into history. I mean, so it, it situates each each event uh, in the context of a long history. And I think uh, one of the, the the weaknesses, I think, when when especially from the West, when it looks at, at at the rest of the world, is to imagine that we have no history. And I think that's a a, a very clever way of of focusing attention and helping people uh, acquire, albeit in very short, snappy ways, uh, a history. So, I, I mean, I'd like to really congratulate you for thinking that uh, that through, and each of you uh, provided uh, the, that in a in a in a wonderful way. Um, so, uh, I'd I'd like to 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 move on to to um, uh, asking um, uh, Sarah Avas uh, perhaps to. To take us through uh, an, a country in which enormous things have happened, enormous developments, and it's quite extraordinary developments. Uh, but yet, there seems to be a, a blind spot in in the media, um, and 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 indeed on the left, I would say uh, about what I find in your description extraordinarily exciting uh, evolution of a struggle. Uh, that we could not even have dreamt of uh, in a, a, a few uh, a few years ago, uh, and so I, I wonder if you'd um, like to help us understand uh, that that perspective. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm um, actually 
was very happy to be part of this project because um, one of the the problems of the last 30 years of the, the al-Bashir regime um, was this kind of isolation that was imposed by the regime on the Sudanese, but also by sanctions from the U.S., from the West on the country. So kind of this dual move of the isolation of the regime itself and the sanctions, which have made it very, um, which have largely isolated us from uh, much of the rest of the world and from the region. And um, I saw some similar dynamics as well in Frida's chapter, so I always find it quite interesting to read about Iran. Um, I think it's very interesting, actually, and one of the things that drew me to this uh, project was the long view, because as you mentioned, um, Firoz, um, that region, as well as much of Sub-Saharan Africa, is thought of as a kind of this place without a history, right? This colonial idea continues to persist. Um, and I would say furthermore, in my discipline at least, uh, which is political science, the Arab Spring or the so-called Arab Spring uh, was treated as kind of like the, the beginning of history. And uh, this was unfortunately internalized by a lot of analysts within the region itself. And of course that boils down to this idea that peoples of those regions do uh, this kind of dominant idea, this Orientalist lens that you mentioned, that they like authoritarianism. They they don't know how to live or be governed without it. So I see a massive move and a massive uh, change between then to now in the ways that that we approach these movements. So when it comes to Sudan, I don't know how much um, I can shed light on it, but I think it's you know I, I really hope that people read this book. Um, Sudan, of course, something that is not very well known about it is that it has a very, very rich history of civil uprisings. So actually, um, the the sort of the, the revolution in, in Tunisia and in Egypt was not as much of an earthquake in Sudan as it was elsewhere, partly because the Sudanese had seen these mass movements take down uh, authoritarian regimes specifically military dictatorships, both in 1964 and 1985. But of course, that set in motion uh, regional dynamics that had also an influence um, many years later on the revolution that began in December 2018. And I think it's very interesting that this wave began in Sudan. I mean, Sudan is somewhat marginal to the region. It's a black African nation that sits between these two kind of colonially constructed regions, the North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, the elites, whether civilian or military, have always tried to uh, promote, if not impose at moments, brutally Arab identity, but it still remains kind of marginal to the region. So um, I think what, what we try, Azza Mustafa and I, Azza Mustafa is the co-author, political scientist based in Sudan, what we try to do in this chapter is to really uh, show the buildup of social movement work that resulted in what we would argue is one of the most sophisticated um, forms of organizing and mobilizing of social movements in, in this century. Um, there has been uh, a real high level of uh, grassroots organizing and mobilizing that allowed this these protests there have been protests in the there have been protests for many years in Sudan that ha, that have allowed these sparks to actually turn into this sustained uh, resistance uh, to the regime 
At the same time, we want to be very careful for Sudan not to become the Tunisia of the second wave, uh, meaning there has been a lot of analysis paid, uh, paid to the so-called failures of the, the, the first wave of uprisings. And of course, in this book, we reject this binary of, of success and failure. Um, but Tunisia has always been posited as the, the success story, but we know that many of the demands of that revolution have not been actually fulfilled. And so um, what we also try to go through in this chapter, or at least reflect on in the conclusions, of course, is very early, but, um, how does how do how is it that these the counter revolution actually works to attempt to dismantle even such a sophisticated level of of organizing in Sudan, which worked at multiple levels between the trade unions, the Sudan Professionals Association, but also the grassroots resistance committees. I'm not going to go on much further because I know I only have five minutes, but I think it would be also interesting for us to. Uh, not only try to draw the connections uh, between the different uh, chapters, which is, I think, what the real strength of this book is, but also to reflect slightly on some of the issues that we pick up on in the book, but perhaps um, have are even more relevant now, which is speaking, for example, about the impact of COVID on this. And then for, for us, particularly in Sudan, as we see playing out right now, is the role of the international counter-revolutionary factors. So, uh, we try also in this book to break out of the idea of only analyzing the sort of local and national conditions, but really look at this very complex interplay between different, not just different levels of the revolution, but different levels of the counter-revolution as well. I think that's um, that's really important. I think it's one of the strengths of each of the chapters in this in in this book, and I think in particular in yours, it reminds me of uh, Cabral's uh, caution that you know it's, it's not enough to just blame imperialism, and he and mm -hmm. he says we have to remember that rice only cooks inside the pot, um, mm -hmm. and so I think I think it is something uh, important. I think your your chapter helps enormously in understanding. Uh, that that those those movements uh, and and what is erupt, but but I, I, in my head I can't resolve um, this the recent signature between uh, Israel uh, the Zionist Israel and uh, the the Sudanese regime. I mean, can you help me understand in the context of all this enormous uprisings, the incredible creativity? How is that possible? Um. Well, I'll give you my take on it. This is actually quite a contentious, as you can imagine, contentious topic, and some of us are also trying to wrap our heads around it. But one of the problems of the ways in which the al-Bashir regime functioned was that, and this we can see actually in, in, in the other chapters, in the other countries as well, is the way that these regimes have attacked the international community, and by international community, I mean the West. So, so much was blamed on um, foreign agendas, Zionist agendas, and so forth. And I think while the Sudanese historically have always stood very, were very, had been very steadfast on the um, on the issue of the Palestinian cause, what has happened is that um, one of the problems is that it has been set up almost that you have the the that the, there's been this narrative that our welcoming back into the international community is going to resolve at least the economic crisis and of course the economic crisis has 
massively deepened in the last, I mean, it's always difficult to talk about economics in Sudan because every time you think you've hit the bottom of the barrel, the bottom of the barrel falls out. And so the economic issue was one of the massive, biggest sparks for the revolution itself. So in the beginning, in the international media, the, 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 the protests were reported as bread riots, right? So generally anything in relation to people of color or black people or Africans is reported as riots, right? It's a way of kind of depoliticizing um, these movements. But the fact of the matter is in response, there has been also a move to kind of downplay the economic factors, which are massive in Sudan. And it, the narrative that has been spun by the Sudanese elite, uh, has, and I'm talking here civilian and military alike, has been that should we manage to remove sanctions on Sudan, which were partially removed already, but also if we manage to get out of this US state sponsors of terrorism list of, on which we have been since the 1990s, that somehow this will alleviate the economic crisis, which has reached really quite desperate levels. And so, there has been this belief or this, let's say there was a campaign that started a few months ago to promote the idea that we have to remove ourselves from this list at any cost. And of course, the cost has been quite high, not to mention, in my uh, humble opinion, it sets a very bad precedent. One of it is that we've paid hundreds of millions of dollars to the U.S., in compensation for uh, the, the 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 victims of the U.S. coal uh, U.S.S. coal attack, as well as the victims of the uh, embassy bombings in uh, Tanzania and Kenya, the U.S. embassy bombings. So this this one of the poorest countries in the world is paying one of the richest countries hundreds of millions of dollars, right at a time of deep economic crisis. Um, and on top of it, the U.S. threw into this deal the fact that you would have to also um, normalize relations with Israel. Now, the U.S. is not the only player. In the Sudanese revolution, during the, during the actual uprising and since, the role of Saudi Arabia and the UAE has been pivotal in the counter-revolution, and that continues. The military leadership within the government is very, very close to the UAE in particular, both to the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And of course, the UAE was normalizing relations with, with Israel. Now, the issue itself, uh, the, the people who are against this normalization within Sudanese civil society are often accused of elitism, which has been one of the things that has been part of this coordinated campaign for normalization. But also, many people are questioning not necessarily the choice itself, but the fact that this unelected government, which to this day has not appointed a transitional legislative assembly, which is a key component of this transitional period, is making decisions on this. So internationally, for Israel, it's not just a question of legitimization. It's also a very important question in relation to its own internal politics, because Darfurian refugees uh, or refugees from the region of Darfur in Sudan, but also from other parts of Sudan, are one of the biggest groups of refugees in, in uh, Israel and have been treated really, really, really in brutal ways. And this is well documented by human rights organizations within Israel itself. And so Israel's interest in this is also for it to be able to get rid of what it calls its infiltrator problems, because they're not called refugees, they're called infiltrators. So you see this kind of, I would say, the coming together of the Sudanese elite, both the civilian and the military, along with these international agendas in relation to the legitimization of Israel, but also the UAE's 
influence over the military and that's how you end up with this decision. In theory, the decision has not been is not formalized yet. They the 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 up the upcoming assembly would formalize it, but the government is already acting in this as as though the normalization is is law. So I would say that it is a done deal unless something happens between now and uh, when the this uh, legislative assembly would vote on it. Right. Okay. That's a very very useful highlight. <clears throat> Let's turn to, 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 to Algeria. You know, people of my generation cut their teeth in the Algerian revolution uh, and, um, and to see it arising again. But the creativity uh, of the recent uprising has been quite extraordinary. Um, so let me turn to, to uh, Selma Omari. Perhaps you can help us understand the nature of this, uh, this extraordinary uprising. Yes, sure. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Um, just to precise, uh, I currently live in Paris. Uh, the New Anti-Capitalist Party is an organization who is in France. So what's the relationship with Algeria? <laughs> you might know it a bit, but uh, the organization's history has been committed to, um, to fight for the liberation also of Algeria under the colonialist rule. So there is this always this relationship of solidarity and struggle uh, from France to Algeria. And this is the history in which um, many people here, Algerians living in France are still in. So concerning the Hirak itself, actually uh, the first thing I would like to acknowledge is that, is that the Sudanese, uh, in the timing, uh, the Sudanese rise up and also showed the way to, to the Algerians who started their Hirak. Uh, now that we can we can see that we live in a world with mass uprising, it's very important to document them, uh, to show the history where it comes from, and to understand uh, how it's what's happening today uh, in Algeria. What brought the people to um, protest against uh, against the regime, to denounce uh, the military regime? Is, uh, is also the result of a long history of struggles that very few people know, very few people have informations from, from everything that happened uh, since uh, the independence. And, what's, and that's, the, that's what this chapter is about. Um, unity uh, between the class needed to be uh, built on a long-term basis, uh, many we, we show that many social movements, many trade union movements and strikes as well, cultural also um, discussions about what it means to be Algerian, to because we had a history of this and it had uh, divided Algerians for a long time uh, between the um, the the Amazir, uh, the original culture, the Amazir. Uh, identity and the Arab identity and the, the French heritage where so all this um, shows that the identity is very complex and it was a very important element in which uh, I would say that people had um, lots of fights there were like the state um, actually tried to 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 bind and censor the Amazigh uh, identity uh, since the the independence, just to assert that uh, Algeria is an Arab country, which is not 
just that. I think the same the same thing that um, that that Sudan uh, Sudan is experiencing, and so we we've been beyond that, and this is what also allowed more um, unity among the people to 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 face also uh, their I would say their their oppressors, uh, and, and that's an important element. So in the chapter, you have the cultural side, but you also have uh, the economic situation. And and I think the goal uh, with Hamza Hamoujan, who's a con who contributed to the article, is to um, it, it, it's, it's not just to explain the, the, the internal economic situation, but to understand the internal economic situation and the, the crisis uh, Algeria is witnessing, the economic crisis Algeria is witnessing, you have to link it with the way um, the global economy is organized and the role of Algeria within it, and especially the choice of the ruling class to submit to the international economic rules of the market, which means um, which means providing, um, I don't know the word, in, I forgot the word, but providing, I mean, like uh, providing oil and gas roughly in, in low prices, just mm. was, was the main, I would say, was the main economic activity and it is submitted to um, the global economy as well as, uh, as well as many, many, many other aspects of it. So the question of what do we what 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 do we do with our uh, what do we do with our our natural resources is it, it was key and linked to that also it's not it's not just an economic question as we see it's a balance of forces globally but also in intern, internally and even the revenues of this of this uh, of this uh, of the oil and um, oil and gas is, I would say, just taking over by 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 the ruling class, which is mostly um, compound composed by the military. Ju just to say it roughly, um, and 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 the whole question of national sovereignty over these resources is also raised, and it is a very sensitive question in Algeria, and it was a an important motto in the massive Hirak movement that we have witnessed, because it dwells in a long history of resisting colonialism. And in a way, after the independence, it has been translated, especially within this movement, into, into what I would say, um, a re, reappropriation of of a common power over, over, over the state. Um, so, so this is this is the way that uh, we, in the chapter, this is the way we, we 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 mostly try to explain how we we came to a situation in which uh, such a movement was erupted, such massive demonstration all throughout the country erupted, and also um, the halting uh, since the COVID crisis which uh, actually puts 
a momentum to the movement, but still we don't know what's happening because, uh, as we said also in the chapter, there are, there are resistance uh, within the movement because the the the, the military is trying is now banning and imprisoning uh, journalists, activists, and so there are also movements to oppose that. Until now, it is the kind of you know, tension that is happening because they are trying to profit from the COVID crisis to, 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 to censor and imprison the people. Right. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll talk a lot about the sort of commonalities that, uh, that you've referred to. And I think one of the things that's emerging is, is the impact of COVID is something I think we will need to to perhaps open up a discussion during uh, the, the, the round table um, part. But thank you for, for that um, uh, elaboration of uh, the, the, the situation. Uh, um, uh, perhaps we could turn to, to discussing the situation in, in Iraq. Um, Zaydan uh, Al-Kinani, would you be uh, up for giving us a quick um, uh, update on that? Sure. Thank you, Feroz. Thank you, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with everyone. We just met today online for the first time, well, at least I did. Um, before I move locally into speaking about the Iraq case that I was responsible for in this uh, book, I would like to talk about the, the regional commonalities since we're talking about the MENA protest movements. And, and one of the most interesting things that I realized and observed um, personally before we even started this book is that the second wave of the MENA protest or the second wave of the Arab Spring, like a lot of people would like to call, but it doesn't really have that notion for many reasons, is that um, we, uh, we witnessed that the protest movements in this book did skip or try to avoid uh, the mistakes or the unfortunate challenges that a lot of the uprisings had to uh, fall into or the traps they had to fall into uh, during the Arab Spring. There was a lot of uh, there was a lot of awareness. There was a lot of youth awareness and momentum regarding to ensure that no political agendas would be able to uh, take an advantage of an empty platform that is led by a, a grassroots uh, youth-led protest movement. Uh, there was a lot of awareness uh, about avoiding any sort of political discourse that would promote or encourage uh, moving from a peaceful. Uh, uprising to an armed rebellion, um, although a lot of the uprisings in the, in the MENA region fell into that without the actual protest movement welcoming it. Um, there was a lot of uh, care from the re regional power players. Um, they, 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 they weren't as keen in getting involved or interfering uh, just like they used to in the Arab Spring. Maybe they did so more in Iraq than the other uh, protests in this book. I also like to look at the similarities between some of the countries. Um, Lebanon and Iraq shared a very similar uh, challenge that the both protest movements were uh, rising against, and that is uh, the Muhasasa, which is known as the ethnic sectarian quota that was imposed uh, on the people, where they distribute or 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 share the the powerful positions and ministries uh, to political parties based on their ethnic sectarian. 
distribution or a division instead of their uh, experience or qualifications to have those positions. Um, Iraq uh, was also a victim of the, the Iran-backed militias that are in Iraq and that are the armed wing, wings of the, the most powerful political parties in government. Those are the very same uh, Iran uh, backed militias that are that, that were targeting and killing and assassinating and intimidating the protesters in Iran. So you can see a lot of similarities between two different nations that have probably a very different struggle, but it's also very similar at the same time. Um, moving to Iraq, um, at least I tried to do it in four different ways. I looked at it from four, uh, four different angles. Um, I did it in a gradual order. And that was, I, I began with the pre-2003 historical roots. And I remember I gave Jade such a hard time because I gave him a chapter that was 80% of Iraq's history uh, rather than the actual October uh, uprising. <laughs> Another element of looking at it is the, the post-2003 Iraq dynamics. By post-2003 Iraq, we mean uh, the new Iraq, uh, which we saw after the U.S. occupation in 2003. And then we look at the two, uh, 2015 onwards protest movement, which I'll talk later a bit into depth later on if I have time. And then finally, I talk about the October uh, uprising or the revolution, if you want to call it that, as a separate concept that probably doesn't have anything to do uh, with those uh, three previous uh, periods or eras. Um, one of the interesting things uh, that a lot of observers and analysts or people even noticed about the, the October 2019 uprising in Iraq is that it occurred or emerged in uh, the southern provinces and the capital. And the southern provinces, interestingly enough, is, is mostly inhabited uh, by the Shia population or the community, which uh, the, 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 the government that is led by the Shia political parties claims to represent, claims to defend, claims to serve. Um, the South historically, when I when I pulled the socioeconomic uh, indicators before 2003 into today's uprising, I look at how the South or the so Southern um, uh, community always have that history of uh, victimization. They have always been marginalized by by the Ottoman rule, uh, later by the British mandate, uh, which also witnessed the tribal uh, rebellion led by the tri uh, uh, tribal leaders of the South. Um, and then later on, the, the, the marginalization and the struggle and the repression they faced by the Ba'athist regime uh, from 1963 up until uh, 2003. And then I move from a post-2003 Iraq perspective. As a lot of us know, uh, it's a natural response uh, to the Iraq, uh, to the new Iraq that was imposed on, uh, on the Iraqi people. Regardless of people's uh, stance towards Saddam Hussein, we witnessed a lot of people, many Iraqis, if not most Iraqis, who uh, did not enjoy uh, Saddam's dictatorship, but also did not enjoy the US occupation. That is the very same uh, political or superpower that armed Saddam, funded Saddam in his war against Iran, and now they decided to replace him uh, by, the, by the, the political opposition, which they wanted to impose on the Iraqi people without any elections, which I also mentioned um, in my chapter. Um, and then I talk about the 2015 to the onwards protest movement, which uh, began in 2015. And that was, we could say that was the first time we witnessed uh, a transition from identity politics to issue politics in Iraq. Uh, Iraqis were no longer interested in knowing who the new Kurdish president is. They were no longer interested in who is the new uh, Sunni speaker of parliament. They were more interested in knowing if the unemployment rates are going to keep increasing. They were more interested in knowing if electricity and water is going to continue to be absent from the next uh, government. 
Um, there was a frustration with the war with ISIS. ISIS came into Iraq in 2014. So in 2015, a lot of people were protesting against this government that claims to be fighting ISIS in 2014 and that also claimed to be fighting the Shia militias in 2008 and that also claimed to be uh, fighting Al-Qaeda in 2004. Now, of course, we're not denouncing the violence from these extremist groups, but what we're denouncing is that when is the government going to actually work for the people? When is the government going to work on rebuilding and reconstructing uh, the healthcare system, the education, the infrastructure? Are we just going to keep on fighting? Are we just going to keep on with witnessing uh, sectarian political violence? Is this what the post-2003 Iraq is for? And then finally, I talk about the, the October uh, uprising. I, but I have to confess that I was one of the people who used to call it the October Revolution. But thanks to Jade, uh, in a conversation with him, he made me notice that it's an uprising rather than a revolution. Well, he didn't say it, but he made me notice that. He reflected and emphasized on it. And I guess from a, ge a geopolitical perspective, it's hard to call the revolution in Iraq a revolution. It might be culturally and politically, but because it only occurred and emerged in the southern provinces where most of the population is and the capital, and it wasn't in the western or in the northern Kurdish areas, we have to call it an uprising and it might be a political revolution rather than a geographical revolution because I guess we all agree. Well, I don't want to enforce on what you agree, but we all uh, probably think that a revolution should be uh, widespread. It's a mass campaign. Finally, my last words is that I look at the October uprising, which we in Arabic called Thawra uh, Tishreen or Intifada Tishreen. Um, it was the most widespread uh, protest movement in Iraq. It was the most evident and present role of Iraq's youth in Iraq's history. Uh, we saw 14-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 25-year-olds, unemployed uh, graduates and students and, 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 uh, and different labor unions uh, trying to finally determine what is best for their country. Um, we saw a very new uh, sentiment, which is the anti-Iran sentiment. By anti-Iran, we mean the anti-Iran-backed militias in Iraq and not Iran as a country, not Iran as a population or the nation. The people of Iraq uh, realize and are aware that the struggles of the Iranian people are the same struggles of the Iraqi people against the very same interest groups that are backed by the very same uh, uh, political powers in this world, I try to connect these four different uh, factors, but I also try to give the October uprising its very own character, um, a character that was also intensified by the response of the, the government in early October 2019. The more we realized that the more violence they were receiving, the more intimidation the more assassinations. There were around 800 people who died, 800 peaceful protesters who got killed uh, by the militias or the uh, police forces, armed forces. We realized that the more violence, the more struggle, the more the, the, the identity of the October uprising becomes stronger, the more people joins them on the street. Uh, people were no longer protesting against these, the, the, the Iraqi government, but they were also protesting against the religious establishment. They were protesting against the sectarian discourse that was adapted, promoted, and supported by many private organizations, religious or political or even economic, beyond the political system, um, and beyond the official political system. We like to call it in Arabic, which means the deep state, and that is basically a, a network of interest groups uh, that consists of uh, political parties that are not necessarily in the government, but they probably have much more power uh, than the political parties or the politicians 
and government. I hope I didn't cross my five minutes. I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thank you. Yeah, no, well, thank you very much. Um, I mean, it just strikes me, uh, this is another area where we see silences, which this book has helped break. Um, and, and, and that is, there's very little understanding about what has happened in terms of uprisings in, 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 in Iraq. It's still seen as internecine uh, killings. Uh, and so I think there's some very important uh, dimensions in that chapter. This issue of, of revolt uh, revolution, um, if, if one sees revolution as an event, a singular event, I think, you know, maybe you're right and that's not the right way to call it. But if one sees it as a, uh, as a, what is happening is maybe uh, act two of scene one, uh, and, and it's the ongoing story. Uh, it hasn't, uh, hasn't finished. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm always wary about these discussions about is it or is it not? It's, it's evolving and, uh, and uh, we'll see where where it goes. Um, let's move to 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 to, to Lebanon, um, uh, and uh, we we have um, uh, Joey uh, Ayoub, a Lebanese Palestinian scholar, and activist, and writer. Um, uh, Joey, would you like to give us a, 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 a an update on on? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, very good. Okay. So. First, thank you for having me and thank you for putting me after Iraq because I think some of the similarities between Lebanon and Iraq are actually very interesting to look at, although Iraq has suffered um, at a much, much greater scale. We don't have any anywhere near the, the amount of casualties, for example. Um, Jade and I, one, so one of the unfortunate um, issues when writing a book, uh, which is the same issue when writing any article, is you have to stop somewhere. And in the case of Lebanon, unfortunately, we had to stop before the August explosion. Mm. Now, I don't think our analysis would have necessarily changed because we focused on the end of 2019 and early 2020. Mm. But the August explosion sort of gave the, um, for me anyway, personally, I don't know if, if Jad would agree, um, kind of a different feel to what's been happening. And the urgency of the protests in October 2019, in some ways, were revealed uh, much later, which for the... Uh, bad luck of protesters in Lebanon happened in the middle of COVID-19, obviously, and so which, has slow, which had slowed down significantly the protests in the country prior to August. And so there is this difficulty always as to when to start and when to end. But what we try to do is to give, obviously, as well, a historical uh, overview. And Lebanon happened to have, um, happens to have kind of a cycle of 15 years, more or less. So if you start in 75, Although we also we also briefed uh, we also mentioned briefly the, the the history before 75, but without civil war in 75 it lasted until 1990. It's actually multiple wars within one, but people call it the civil war to just simplify it a bit. And then from 90 to 2005, you had what you might call the post-war reconstruction era, which never really ended after either. But that's sort of in the 90s when it had it was its heyday, let's say. And after 2005, the assassination of the prime minister Rafid Hariri you had the formation of this binary, the March 8 versus March 14 binary, uh, which are two rival political movements, although um, various people have argued, and I agree with that, that it's it's more of a placeholder, uh, name holder more than anything else, because uh, they're actually not necessarily opposed to one another, they actually uh, depend on one another quite a lot. And this is where some of the comparisons with Iraq would come in as well, because you would have on 
on the one hand, uh, you know, the movements that are pro Saudi Arabia actually being pretty cozy with the movements that are pro Iran. In this case, I'm mentioning the Hariz movement and Hezbollah. So the protests in Lebanon started in October, uh, but they didn't they didn't start only in October. October was kind of just the, the straw that walked the camel's back, as that expression has been repeated too many times by now. Um, and what we saw since then are really a different waves. I also agree with the wariness of having a very strict distinction between a revolution and uprising. And that's why in, in the book, we we call it like the dual nature of the Lebanese uprising, because we, we agreed that there is a revolutionizing, if you want, a revolutionary, dimension to the uprising, although we would also agree that uh, in many ways it's simply not over. Now, any uprising, I think, uh, regardless of how you call it, has always a fragile dimension to it in the sense that there are just too many actors and too many factors to take into account, which always resists uh, the sort of oversimplification that we might see in, in these types of books, which is what obviously we try to avoid, which is why I think uh, I actually enjoyed reading it as well, not just writing it. I enjoyed reading the other chapters. So uh, I don't want to overstep my time too much. All I'll say is that there is much to come, I think, in the case of Lebanon, in, within, from within Lebanon, that are very, very difficult to predict and very difficult to analyze in advance, obviously, for obvious reasons. And there will be many factors to come, um, first of which probably is the economic crisis, which is still ongoing and which is likely to be ongoing uh, which is likely to continue uh, for quite some time. And if we agree, and I think panelists here would probably agree that the root causes of the uprising were primarily economic and you know sectarianism and all of that in the case of Lebanon, those problems are very much still there in, in Lebanon and they've by any measure have gotten significantly worse. So I think it's fair to say that if we, um, if all of these factors had led to October, 2019, I personally would, would think that something else is going to come along the way, although the form in which it might manifest itself obviously uh, is impossible to say. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's very helpful. Yeah, uh, we can't predict the future, but uh, certainly we can learn from, from the, the, the developments of the events at the moment. And I think there'll be a lot of questions uh, in, the, in the round table around uh, both meaning of that uh, big explosion, but but also the parallels with uh, what has happened in Palestine. Maybe it's an area where we have been, might perhaps have also had a, had a chapter. Um, let me move on to to uh, Frida Fari to speak about uh, really interesting uh, work on 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 Iran and again opening up, uh, moving the the blinds from uh, from from the situation in Iran. I think was. Uh, very helpful to overcome some of the silences that we experience. So, Frida, uh, a warm welcome uh, to you. Thank you. So, uh, first of all, I want to thank uh, Daraja Press, Firoz, and Jade Saab for the, uh, making this book possible. And I especially want to thank Jade for his amazing, wonderful questions that really helped us write our chapters. I mean, I, I, I told him that I just followed through on his questions and there I had chapters. So thank you, Jade. Um, we are facing a war on Iran, 
by Israel, US, the US, Saudi Arabia, that has been going on for for a long time, and um, the, uh, and and it's had another stage opening up with the assassination of the Iranian uh, nuclear weapons scientist Fakhrizadeh uh, three days ago, and remains to be seen what will happen, which because Iran has promised to take revenge and. Last time it promised to take revenge, it brought down a plane with 176 passengers, mostly Iranians, uh, over Iran's uh, uh, territory. So uh, it's very important to talk about uh, international, regional and international solidarity, uh, anti-war, anti-imperialist regional and international solidarity. And this book can truly help us if we uh, follow through on its content. So to say a bit about the chapter that I wrote on Iran, uh, uh, first, I have tried to establish the facts about the November 2019 uprising that involved um, at least a couple of hundred thousand people. It was a working class revolt with uh, young people and women in the forefront. And I try to connect it both uh, going back to the December 2017, January 2018 uprising, which was also working class, also had women and youth in the forefront. And I take go, go forward to the January 2020 protests against the uh, Iran bringing down, uh, uh, shooting down the uh, plane with 176 passengers and all the protests that uh, resulted from that against uh, war and uh, against dehumanization and and against uh, and I, what I sing a lot is that these these uprisings they've all been against both the Iranian regime's exploitation of Iranian people and its social injustice domestically and also against uh, Iran's regional imperialist interventions in Syria in Iraq in Lebanon in, in Yemen. And that's, that's been a really important um, dimension of, of these uh, uprisings, both the one that started in 2017 and the one that started in 2019. So that's what the first point that I established. Secondly, I try to clarify the character of the Iranian regime as a militarized state capitalism with uh, regional imperialist uh, interventions uh, and, and ambitions. Um, uh, but also a regime that uses an anti-imperialist language, has used it from the beginning, from 1979, when the uh, Islamic fundamentalist uh, faction or a portion of the opposition took over the revolution and, um, and uh, gave it an Islamic fundamentalist character. And... Um, uh, it has used an anti-imperialist language from, from the beginning. Um, the third point that I try to establish is, uh, I, or I try to discuss various for, uh, forces of revolt in Iran, uh, who they are, the labor struggles, the women feminist struggles, the oppressed minorities, Arabs, Kurds, um, as well as religious minorities, such as the Baha'is and the Sufis, uh, the uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, uh, transgender uh, activist struggles, the um, student youth, 
um, activities and efforts to connect with other struggles, the environmental struggles, and the political prisoners. That represents all the struggles that I just mentioned. And I, I'd be happy to say more about them uh, when we discuss this book further. Uh, the next point that I try to establish is um, what are both the, some of the possibilities and the limitations of these struggles and these forces and, and of Iranian socialists, as small as they are. Um, I also look at some of the lessons that we can learn from the 1979 revolution and address three main problems. Um, one is um, within Iranian society at large and within among Iranian socialists. One is the problem of statism, having an alternative to capitalism that doesn't really go beyond state capitalism. Two is uh, nationalism, specifically Iranian nationalism. And three is sexism and misogyny, which is still quite, quite prevalent um, within socialists as well. Um, and then uh, uh, the last point that I try to discuss is uh, the need for regional and global solidarity. And um, the, um, on the one hand, we see the, uh, uh, the MENA uprisings, which are really amazing and create new possibilities um, on the, uh, for, for regional solidarity. Uh, on the other hand, we uh, see, unfortunately, the majority of uh, global socialists, not all, but the majority, still uh, go by the anti-imperialist language that the Iranian government uses to say that uh, either uh, they should support the Iranian regime against U.S. and Israeli and Saudi Arabian imperialism, or that Iran is just the lesser of the two evils or the lesser of the various evils. So um, uh, that continues to be a problem. And so instead of actually uh, siding with the struggles inside Iran, um, we see um, siding with the Iranian regime. And uh, But at the same time, I think that within the MENA region, I think we too are to be blamed for uh, not engaging the global struggles enough, uh, specifically uh, well, the, the, the current, for the current moment, uh, the Black Lives Matter struggle, uh, Black Lives Matter uprising in the US, the abolitionist struggle, and the uh, uh, women's liberation uh, struggles, most specific manifestation of it, the Me Too movement, that we too need to engage those more. And we do have Me Too struggles inside the region as well. And lately we've had a, a budding Me Too movement in, in Iran. So there are a lot of possibilities um, that we can work with. And hopefully this chapter can um, create a basis for a lot more um, uh, discussion and real activity of solidarity. So that's all I have to say for now. As far as COVID is concerned, I'd be happy to, to talk more about it in the discussion. Yes, COVID is, has severely damaged Iran. In fact, in the, in the region, I think Iran has had the worst COVID case with uh, uh, the massive deaths and, and uh, 
at least half the population is infected at this point by some estimates. Uh, so at the same we have COVID. We also have this current situation of political prisoners worsening. Uh, political prisoners are, are dying in prison, catching COVID or being executed. Um, um, so we, we need to talk about all of that. Great. Well, I think that opens up a number of issues. I'm going to um, see if I have you on the screen at the same time. Um, and uh, perhaps to sort of kick off, um, let me take a, a question that's been posed by, by Bill Fletcher Jr., who's been doing this. Um, he writes, do the authors believe that the current breakdown in the ceasefire between Rosario and Morocco is part of the second wave. Uh, there are various observers who would argue that the 2010 Sahrawi uh, um, uh, protests represented, along with the Iran Green Movement, the beginning of the uprisings in 2011. Anyone want to respond to, to Bill Fletcher's question? Um, so I didn't so hear the whole some... question. You got cut off. Can well, you read that again? Yes. Um, I mean, basically saying, uh, uh, do you all believe that the current breakdown in the ceasefire between Polisario and Morocco uh, is part of the second wave um, that accompanies uh, the second wave which has been described in this book? Any comments on? Yes, Sarah. I mean, the, the, the coverage that I'm seeing of it is very much mainstream media coverage. So it's very hard to formulate um, a feeling about the current breakdown in the ceasefire. I know that Polisario is saying that it's withdrawing from the ceasefire. There's been a lot of movement there also in relation, in reaction by the Moroccan government. Um, I think it opens up the possibilities. Um, for me, one way in which it could become part of this wave is if it also manages to connect with some of the social movements within Morocco. So for example, I've always felt that um, Morocco didn't get enough of a place within the first wave with the 20th of February movement that took place in 2011, um, and which the, the 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 monarchy in Morocco managed to sort of masterfully diffuse that movement. But also, very interestingly, the Herak movements, um, the Herak that has been taking place in the Reef region of uh, of, of Morocco in 2016 and 2017, especially with really powerful movements that uh, took place, which were met with a lot of a brutal um, response by the Moroccan regime. So it's difficult to, to see where this is going, but what is, um, what is interesting, or at least what I'm looking for alternative um, and, and, and media on this is to see what is, because the way it's reported in the international media is very much about the Polisario and the regime and the Moroccan regime, rather than to understand how this plays into the social movement dynamics more broadly, but also whether they are able to connect with these social movements within Morocco, which have been flaring up and bubbling up under the surface for the last 10 years, actually, since the first wave. Um, 
And so I guess that's not really a full answer, but it's right. something right. in relation to this. I, I, I can give you give some some elements of understanding that um, we are. I think we we we, we can't understand why um, um, there is a break of the ceasefire. Also, if we don't if we don't get to know that this kind of um, I would say conflicts that are happening are also deeply linked with the economic crisis and the effects of the COVID-19. Why am I saying that? Is that several uh, little wars are re-erupting. They were there. Like, for example, the Artsakh, um, the Artsakh uh, conflict. Uh, it was always there for a long time. It's still an issue of um, territories, of self-determinations of the people living there. And so the Polisario issue is also uh, re-erupting, but 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 the conflict was was still there because like the Sahrawi people have been colonized by the Moroccan regime and are trying to resist the same way that in a, in a more radical way or different way than the Rif because uh, they they want to achieve independence and they want their republic to be to be settled while Morocco is denying their sovereignty they're taking over the natural resources and there is this fight for natural resources that is still still still, still happening and so. They are benefiting for the current um, crisis and also for the, the 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 lack of resources. They are trying to, to to grab on. Like the Moroccan regime is trying to grab on more and more, the same way Israel does on Palestine, and the same way, in my opinion, like Azerbaijan is trying to do to entrench uh, one of the few places where uh, resistance is. And also, that's what they are doing to the to to, to the reef uh, people. Uh, to the people, to American people in the Reef who who were politically imprisoned, they are they 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 are trying to move on, to, to to move on on their side to make sure that there will there won't be yeah. any resistance against as well. So the the the, the question of the Polisario is still very tense, and it also raised uh, diplomatic issues with Algeria because Algeria is backing uh, the Polisario movement, part for I would say geostrategical reasons, but also part of uh, the history of supporting, um, I would say, like oppressed nations, the same way they support, you know, the Palestinian people. You have this feeling of also supporting uh, the people in southern right, Sahara. Right. Sahara. Um, I mean, many of you have mentioned uh, COVID as, as something that is something to be dealt with. Uh, and I mean, one of the things, certainly in 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 many African countries, that that I've been told about in series of interviews I did was, people talk about it as a revelation, as a as removing some of the veils around our eyes to be able to better understand the nature of the societies in which we live. Um, to what extent then uh, do you feel that? COVID is also playing that role in terms of revealing more clearly uh, the class nature of, uh, of the state and its response to, uh, to, the, to the pandemic. To what extent is it affecting the direction and potentials of the movements that have arisen in each of these countries? Um. Uh, I can start. Sure. Um, I mean, in, in the case of Lebanon, it's, it's pretty stark. It's pretty obvious. The um, 
there's been no real organized response to COVID-19 on the part of the government. It's been largely the uh, some segments of the public sector in 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 coordination with uh, medical workers that also work in the private sector, uh, which has created a lot of problems, to put it uh, very, very mildly, because in the same time period, the government has just been focusing on reinstating its uh, reputation in uh, the quote-unquote international community, namely especially with France and the West and so on. Um, the class distinctions in Lebanon, obviously they've always been there, but yeah, I do agree, uh, at least to a certain extent, they have been uh, exposed for what they've always been in the case of, of the country, and I'm guessing in the rest of the world, it's kind of the similar situations we've been seeing. But yes, at least as far as Lebanon is concerned, it's definitely highlighted, for example, the fact that there's no there's no universal healthcare in the first place. And this is something that is um, costing a lot of lives, uh, quite a lot of lives right now. And we don't we can't even rely on official figures for the most part. Jade, let me ask you, because, you you know, you 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 edited this, uh, this book, and you brought this, uh, these amazing people together. Um, Looking at, at, at that, how do you see this playing out? How, what is COVID telling us about our societies? Um, I wanted to, before answering that question, follow up on, on something Joey said. And, and I see a similar uh, pattern in Lebanon, uh, and maybe it, it's not a very optimistic pattern, with how uh, the, the population at large, the movement was impacted by COVID, as well as how it was impacted later on by the explosion. Whenever Lebanon faces some kind of massive crisis, uh, we see it automatically being deferred to either private sector actors or non-governmental organizations as well, which as, as good intentioned as they are, as, uh, of course, to, to kind of plug a gap that the, the state is not, not you know, dealing with or not acting, also creates a, a depoliticizing process. Um, uh, while at the same time, uh, creating a window for political parties in Lebanon to, to enter uh, the scene and reinvigorating their kind of clientel uh, clientelist networks. Uh, so as soon as COVID started, you saw all these political parties who are responsible essentially for the degradation of our health system uh, jump into action, uh, put you know uh, spread on social media the pictures of their uh, uh, party members in you know uh, protective equipment, uh, going around disinfecting towns, etc. So. Uh, it has a double effect where, yes, it intensifies the crisis, but at the same time, it, it re-lends uh, some kind of legitimacy to, to the system itself, um, either through the intervention of NGOs or through this um, cantonization of Lebanon, where you have these political parties jump into action as the proper representatives of the interest of the people in each section of the society. Uh, so you've definitely had a, a double a double process. And with, with somewhere like Lebanon, and uh, it would be great to hear from Zaydun if it's the same in, uh, in, uh, in Iraq, uh, this sectarian system has always been a way to divide the working class and to to create a solid basis of class conflict or class struggle. I mean, the class conflict is there, but but genuine proletarian class struggle uh, against the ruling class. So, uh, 
as with everything, it is more complex than than just how it, it functions, uh, like how, you know, a, a clear direction. On a global scale and in the region, uh, you know, it is a crisis. It is a crisis. And at the same time, we've seen how that's impacted the accumulation of wealth for, for a very few, while uh, others, especially those who are considered uh, as essential workers, uh, I'm based in the UK. You know, we have the NHS here. The only thing they've been given is is claps at certain times at night. You know, as as to show this essential worker, this this myth that then develops around it. Uh, also meant to remove or depoliticize the economic aspects of a crisis such as this. Um, again, you know, all of all most of the ruling classes in the regions covered in this book don't have the, the health care and don't care to, to provide the health care for, for people. And, and we have seen it acting as a radicalizing element at the same time, acting as a justification to bring in the army. For the example of Lebanon, the army was mobilized to impose lockdown uh, and to suppress the movements themselves. Um, it's hard to say maybe after this there will be a reinvigoration, a more radical street movement that adds to its list of things the government has messed up, essentially, the response to COVID. But so far, I'd say COVID has tipped the balance in favor of the ruling classes who have been able to, to, to mobilize against the street. Uh, Sarah, movement. do you see the same manifestation in Sudan? We can't hear you. Uh. One thing that has happened uh, under this transitional government or what we call the civilian component of this transitional government is they've responded to demands to increase um, spending on health, education, particularly these two. I mean, Sudan is a country that um, under the former regime, at least 70 to 75% of its budget went to defense and security, right? So. If you look at the new budget, it's it's much better in the sense that they've uh, increased uh, on paper, they've increased spending. The problem is that um, actually the Sudanese Minister of Health, was the, who has lost his job since, was uh, heavily critiqued at the beginning of the pandemic for going on TV and saying, look, if you don't observe the lockdowns uh, and if you don't prevent yourself from being infected, um, the best we can do for you, and maybe not even that, is to put you on a on a, give you some oxygen. But there's nothing we can do for you, and that was a really interesting moment because what uh, what actually infuriated uh, the elites was not the problem itself, but the fact that he spoke about it openly. Okay, and the and it sort of boils. I mean, there was more rage that he sort of made the country look bad than the fact that there is such a situation going on in the country where your minister of health is telling you that basically you're going to die if you get COVID. But the interesting thing is that this, I would say this, trans this transitional period, some effort has been made at legal reform, I would say very progressive legal reform. Some effort has been made at changing the budget, so re-budgeting, um, reallocating budget. The problem is there has been very little effort made to actually address the economic structure. And the economic structure remains such, I mean, I again, I think about Algeria, also the chapter on Algeria, the, this extractive relationship that we have with our resources, number one, 
So what do we supply? We still supply only raw materials to the rest of the world. Secondly, most of this, for example, one of the biggest um, sources since the loss of the oil revenues in 2011 or much of the oil revenues to South Sudan, um, the regime, the, the Al-Bashir regime was saved temporarily by the emergence of gold. Sudan has some of the biggest gold deposits in the world. And these gold deposits remain under the control of uh, the Rapid Support Forces militia, the Janjaweed militia that's now part of the governance. It is under the control of, I don't know, 50, 80. People are still trying to map the amount of companies or front companies that own these mines. There have been mass sit-ins across the country in different places since the transition, right? Since the beginning of the transition, where people have demanded that they uh, that they gain control over these resources, or that at least the government would strip these resources away. So, you ended up, for example, with the lockdown situation. I uh, interview or I'm in touch with the union of tea and food sellers, which are some of the most marginalized. Um, women in, in, in the urban areas who are displaced by war from Darfur, from Blue Nile, from Nuba Mountains, some of the richest areas of the countries in terms of resources and the poorest, in terms of the population, and who are also racialized, right? They are non-Arabs and racialized within that matrix. And they the lockdowns, they, there was an attempt to impose the lockdown on them with absolutely no provision whatsoever for their well-being or for the fact that if these women do not go to the market or on the street, they cannot actually earn and survive, right? So for, for much of the poor, COVID itself has not been the biggest problem. The biggest problem is how do we eat? I mean, there's less of a concern about catching it and more of a concern about the fact that the ways that it's changed the economic landscape has made it even more impossible to survive economically. Um, it has also been interesting because the very elites usually do not get medical treatment in the country. They go elsewhere, Jordan, Egypt, uh, the very wealthy go to the UK. And it's been really interesting for them because unless you own a dual passport, this is the first time in which they have not been able to get on a plane and go. And so that has also kind of uh, been interesting to watch this kind of paralysis of, my God, we have to use this health system, you know, this same health system, even though you have layers of it, but even the best pub private hospitals in Sudan are in many ways death traps, right? Um, there's a saying in Sudan that if you're ill and you go into a, a hospital, you will probably die. And if you're okay, you will get ill. So for the first time, many of them have had to actually face this, this issue. So I think the, the budgetary allocations are a good move, but at the same time, if you if there is no real attempt to challenge the, the 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 structure of ownership of resources, the the fact that so much of these resources are being funneled out of the country, I think it's been a problem. And we don't have many doctors. Many of our doctors already work abroad because it's one of the professions people are attracted to because it gives you some route out of the country, right? And many of the doctors who are working, we have just in the last weeks, we've lost many doctors in this wave of of COVID. And of course, the numbers don't look bad because there's so little testing already, right? So we don't know. I mean, so if you talk to most people, they say COVID is their least problem, actually, right now, you know. And so it has highlighted, I would say, these differences, but it has also, I would add, it has also um, exacerbated them, particularly when it comes to the effect of the effect 
on the poorest that rely on the informal market, which is the majority of the population, actually. Right. I mean, the, the whole topic of the impact of COVID uh, on each of these countries is, is something I would love to have another another session on. And we're, we're coming quite close to the towards the end of the program. But the question I'd like to pose to you, each of you, so as to round this, uh, this discussion up, is that what can you sort of highlight for me two or three major things that you learned from reading the other chapters? What, what, in what way were your eyes opened in, in that? In other words, they, I'm looking for a sort of synthesis of those, uh, those perceptions um, uh, in that. Maybe we, we can start with you, Frida. Uh, similarities. Okay, so just a few points. Um, not, I mean, there's a lot to be said. These are just some that come to mind. Um, the similarities between Sudan and Algeria. Uh, movements challenging both um, uh, military, military governments and religious fundamentalism. Um, and uh, the importance of the role of women in both, and they need to really build on that. Um, and that, that's, I think, is should be one of our projects to build on the what what the what the strong participation of women in those uprisings has meant. Uh, when it comes to uh, Iraq and Lebanon, I think again uh, struck me that they both share this aspect of. Uh, struggling against uh, sectarianism, uh, governments that are based on um, ethnic division or, or a quota system based on ethnicity. And uh, again, there too, um, in the case of Iraq, I think uh, I was interested in how the um, Shia uh, masses really, uh, in an in 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 really important way, broke with the um, in, not totally, but in, in a, an important way, broke with the domination of the Hezbollah and uh, rose up against the internal uh, internal exploiter. Uh, instead of constantly following that uh, that the slogans of anti-imperialism and not addressing the internal uh, exploitation and internal struggles, but I, I am still. Um, waiting to see how there can be uh, connections with the Kurdish struggle in, in, in Iraq. I think that that remains to be seen, and it's a real um, lack that that hasn't been created, that the Kurds weren't strong participants in the, in the uprising. And what can be done about that? Uh, when it comes to Lebanon, I think uh, what needs to be further developed is the role of women. And let's not forget that women, Lebanese women, did that beautiful dance of, of following through on what the Chilean women did, the dance of the song and dance, a rapist in your way, that they were the only ones in the, in the region who did that. And that's tremendous. Lebanon has a very strong um, feminist uh, struggle that needs to be built on. And that was a very important part of the uprising. Um, so those are those are issues that I wanted to sing aloud about about the other countries. Thank, thank you, Rita. Um, Sheldon. What about you? What, what struck you? Uh, 
Yes, of course. Um, I did mention the similarities yeah. earlier. Um, I'll, I'll mention them again and add a few others. But yeah, just like Frida mentioned, Iraq and Lebanon, um, the Mahasasa, the ethno-sectarian system. I was having a conversation before the protests, uh, actually in summer 2019, with some Lebanese people in Lebanon. And I was with an Iraqi, and we were having the conversation with two Lebanese women. And, and the, well, the interesting part we felt is that because the ethno-sectarian system in Lebanon has been there for such a longer time, so it kind of has normalized it amongst the Lebanese community. They don't see it in a more, they don't see it in a similar aggressive and frustrating way like we do in Iraq because we're new to it. So we just, you know, we, we live in this dilemma that it's a, it's a temporary thing that will disappear one day. Whereas in Lebanon, it's, it's, been, it's, it's been there for a longer period. It's more established. And it was also kind of, it was kind of seen as, a, as the alternative, as a ceasefire to stop a very bloody civil war. Whereas in Iraq, it occurred out of nowhere. Like, it probably was there politically prepared during the early stages of the occupation. But no one really thought that that is what democracy is going to be all about. So people didn't really have enough time to, let's say, protest against it or even understand where it's going to lead us unless it was people who had a very close eye to what Lebanon is all about and, and they realized that this is just a, a replica happening again in Iraq. Um, one interesting thing about Iraq and Sudan, and sorry, Salma, this is not about your chapter. This is just something that I've recently <laughs> discovered now, is that I found it very interesting about the Israeli ambitions towards um, the future Sudan and the future Iraq, as if the people in Sudan and Iraq were protesting against uh, uh, unemployment and and you know violence and frustrations with their system just because they want to develop some relations with Israel. So that was a bit frustrating to witness that Israel tries to take an advantage of of two uh, uh, strong uh, people but weak countries that are trying to uh, develop the, their own uh, living standards in their own ways and not trying to ignore the struggles of the Palestinian people and build relations with Israel. But others might disagree with me. Um, Iraq and Algeria, I would say the main um, similarity would be um, that card that the government always use about the public fear of religious fundamentalism coming up if we lose the army or if we lose the government and that if the Algerian if, if the Algerian government or the system or the police force loses control over Algeria, if the same thing happens in Iraq, then we have all these extremist groups that are going to take over Iraq and ignoring the, the thousands of academics and scholars and activists and public servants that could build a better future for both uh, countries. And I guess that's the similarities. What about you, Salma? I saw you shaking your head in relation to. Yes, that's. Uh, I, I was really inspired by, um, by, by by the similarities between um, Iraq and Algeria. But I would like also to acknowledge the fact that uh, the way you fought against sectarianism is uh, also very inspiring for us because. Uh, Algeria is known mostly as a uh, Sunni in majority, Muslim Sunni, and it seems that, uh, you know, from outside that we don't have issue between us, but actually we do have, and in the definition also of Algerian nationalities, as a result of colonialism, you have um, the, the fact that we are automatically Muslims, so the question of religious freedom, even within Islam, is raised, and we still have uh, in Algeria lots 
lots and lots to learn about uh, religious freedom and standing solidarity with people who, you know, just want to define themselves the way they are. And it's a kind of, you know, it, despite the fact that it's not really written in the law, not as clearly as in Iraq or even in Lebanon, still, you have this issue that needs to needs to needs to come out, especially because um, more and more migrants uh, are living in Algeria, and so you have also this, uh, especially anti-black racism, and and one of the elements of the anti-black racism is is also based on religious hatred. So that that's why we need to 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 understand that it's not because you live in a country with his supposed to be historically muslims that that you 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 reject all parts uh all all differences all different religious uh, trends that actually exist but some of them you know are uh, are hidden like christians still in nigeria are you know very oppressed very um especially by the by the controlled by the state and so there is no clear even in the movement, we still not have this clear expression of that. So, so, so yeah. I think that's why the, the the articles on Lebanon and the chapters, sorry, on Lebanon and Iraq are essential. Concerning Sudan, um, I find, I as we said in the article, we really need to learn on how to how, how we need to self-organize ourselves because uh, the Iraq was a kind of spontaneous movement, but it was structured structured around um, weekly demonstration and it had to halt because of the COVID. But how do you how do you also um, manage to 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 build more um, a stronger trade union organization, even political organizations? Still, there are, there are political organizations in Algeria that are trying to structure, but it's still too weak. And so the role of organization within the revolution um, is key if you want to achieve something. And the case of Sudan shows that without these structures, as well as the movement, we can't get uh, anything. We can't make the process going further and the stakes getting higher if we don't build such an organ such such organization. So I believe we are all in a moment in which we, we, we really need to, um, I would say, support every attempt in all these countries to get better organization and and it's also a question that is crossed all throughout this chapter uh, whereas wh whether it's about iraq whether it's about lebanon whether they're also it's about sudan what type of organizations do we need and what organization can we concretely support and um materially but also politically for those who are who are imprisoned, and the experience also of uh, in Iran on the fight on on the on fighting for the liberation of political prisoners is important because this phenomen phenomenon in Algeria is getting uh, is getting worse. So we need to also see how Iranians manage to 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 bring up you know international campaigns to to liberate uh, political prisoners. Yes. Um, so Lebanon, Joey, what about, um, what, what, what struck you? Well, so I'll just, 
I'll just add uh, to what's already been said. One, so I will mention a few things. A, we, we can talk about, you know, and these are all basically entire separate conversations in themselves. Like the role of foreign governments in the separate in our separate context is to various extents pretty severe. I mean, in the case of Iraq, the role of Iran is pretty overwhelming. In the case of Lebanon, it's also a mixture of Iran and the Saudis and a bit of the West, and it gets even messier in some ways. It's, it's very... Um, difficult sometimes to only talk about, for example, the uprising in Lebanon without also having to know what's happening in the region. It's not it's not impossible, but it just makes it all the more difficult. Uh, two obvious factors to kind of take into account is the gender factor and the generational factor. And we can also add the class factor, but I think we, we've mentioned this quite a bit already. The, the generational factor is pretty obvious. The vast majority of those in power are from the older generations and a pretty significant percentage of those protesting are from the younger generation, often actually the majority. And the gender component is also pretty obvious. This is, these are patriarchal systems. The overwhelming 99.999% of those who are ruling are men, especially those who are uh, military men uh, in specific contexts. Whereas among codices, it tends to be more varied. And often we've, we've also seen, excuse me, uh, women leading quite a few protests from Lebanon to Iraq to Sudan, Algeria, and so on. So just these, these are just things that I can, I'm throwing out there. I know we've already talked about them, and so I won't necessarily go back um, you know, and hash them up completely. Excuse me. But I just felt it's important to highlight as my own closing note because I essentially agree with everything that's already been said. <laughs> Great. Sarah, Sudan, what, what struck you about the other chapters? What did you learn? Um, I learned a lot, actually, from the other chapters. Um, I felt that um, I was found them very moving, first of all, uh, reading them, because um, both for the things that resonated and the things that did not, but rather than a compare and contrast, what I thought was really interesting across the different chapters is the ways in which they were able to show how embedded these, this wave is in these histories of struggle. And I felt that that was somehow clear across the different chapters. And it made me really go back to this question of really the fact that this book challenges the idea of revolution or uprising being an event and rather an accumulation of struggle that at certain moments becomes visible or reaches more uh, um, conflict, points of conflict essentially, and has more transformative potential. So uh, while I read about Iraq, sectarianism in particular is not the issue in Sudan, but many things resonate, which is the organization of the state in Lebanon and Iraq on sectarian lines in Sudan in many different ways along um, ethnic and tribal lines. So or regional lines sometimes. So essentially the, the ways in which the state governs through these, and this is civilian or military, so governs through these uh, structures of uh, differentiating and dividing along these sort of constructed things. And I thought that it was, uh, for me, always uh, reading about Algeria is very interesting. There's some differences in the sense that, of course, we are a military Islamist regime, but the structure of the political economy of the country resonates in many, many different ways uh, to us. And I think while the Algeria chapter, chapter very much made clear how the Hirak or the movement now is, uh, in a way, a continuation of the decolonial, decolonizing movements, 
of the past, I could see this, uh, this desire for self-determination in the different contexts actually that uh, across. So this was also, I found it incredibly interesting and a sort of like one question that came up for me reading is um, this idea of while it's very clear that in all of these contexts, the demands are very crisp and clear now, um, much crisper and clearer. People are very clear, movements are very clear about what it is that they want. One thing that maybe is still unfolding or has not developed to the same extent is the imaginations of alternative governance structures, right? So not so much the demands, but what? how do you govern yourself in a way that is different from the past? Sort of the tools and the structures, right? And so um, Selma had mentioned, I always hear from Algerians this, that it's, it's good that we had the Sudanese Professionals Association, but I would say it's also something that we find that it's it's um it's it's got a downside, which is that when you have this very clear leadership, it is also very uh, in in some ways it's harder to divide the movements, but it becomes captured also by the elite in a much clearer way, right? So the way that the uh, forces for freedom and change became the negotiators on behalf of the people, and from April you see them, you see the class conflict becoming very clear with them taking a direction to really stabilize the system and kind of trying to put the brake on change. So I think this is also very interesting, this issue of leadership that I saw from, from the one chapter to the other. That's very, very interesting. Um, so, so Jade, uh, you were responsible for uh, giving birth to this, this book, this Legion in Revolt. Uh, it was an extraordinarily inspired thing to have, have uh, made happen. Um, Apart from uh, spelling uh, Sarah's surname correctly, what, what would you have done differently? Um, there was, a, there was a, a bit of a question at the beginning of this book. Uh, do we want it to be a comparative book or do we want to give it a, you know, give each country its own voice and in that way help reconceptualize the region. Um, I mean, a really, a really maybe cheeky answer here would be: I, I would have wanted it to be longer. Like, there's just so much more to cover. There's so much more to talk about, uh, and, and and maybe even bring this kind of comparative study at the end of what would be good for for all of these countries. How can we? truly build solidarity uh, so that all of these countries can transcend their political economy, which continues to create these crises uh, and, and generate new modes of self-governance. We've seen in the, for me, in the absence of this regional solidarity, we see how these movements are orienting again to, to the global hegemonic forces, you know, back to the US, uh, uh, normalizing relations with Israel, that type of stuff. So uh, it's, it's important to not just think about alternatives in each nation, but also as the, the region as, as a whole. And what I really enjoyed in working on this project and, and it definitely was a group uh, project. It, it wasn't just my, myself. Uh, is it, it helped me reconceptualize uh, the region and and to look at what we you know we 
The first wave was called the Arab Spring. Can we call this an Arab Spring 2.0 now with the inclusion of Iran uh, and now with the depth of, of the, the different cultures we've seen in Algeria? You know, it, it's just a, the world itself of the region. We need, we need to think of it in, in a more different way, uh, as well as the relationships of all these countries with their political economy. So, um a bit of a long way of saying, I think we did a good job. There's not much I would change. Uh, I would like to go in more depth on issues of solidarity and building regional networks of support as well. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the most important thing that you've achieved uh, as a group is to is to catch history on its wings. Uh, and, and I think that's very, very important. Um, and, uh, and, and it gives a sense of movement. Um, but that movement continues. Even today, the book is out of date. Uh, there's so much going on in each of the countries. Um, and so uh, would you think of a, of a volume two? I think we, we might have to. I mean, uh, for me, where the movements have gotten to is we're in a place where the ruling classes keep hitting up on, on their maximum, on, on what they can do. They can't do more than what they can at the moment to try and keep themselves in power. At the same time, we see in the movement struggling with their own contradictions. In some places, a lack of leadership, a lack of clarity, a lack of kind of hegemony amongst the social movement, you know, the forces of change themselves. Um, and, and you know, once we come out of this COVID, there, there's a no doubt since these contradictions have not been resolved yet that there will be a, be it a third wave or a continuation of this wave, whichever way you want to look at, look at it. So uh, there will be stuff we will have to review on what we've written so far as well. As much as we've tried to make this as relevant to what's happening now. We might go back and go, oh, maybe our analysis was off and, and, and adjust to that. So this is a, as I said in the introduction of the book, a long revolutionary process that will continue into the future. So definitely maybe a, maybe a version two of this. Well, this has been a really, really interesting discussion and we could have spoken for much, much uh, longer. Um, I'd like to, to thank you um all of you um for uh for participating in in this uh in this initiative i should mention that this was made possible with the support of the transnational institute tni uh who uh, generously supported uh the initiative by buying lots of copies uh of of the book um so, so to you jane um uh, jane saab sarah abbas Selma Omari, Zaydon Arikani, uh, Joey Ayub, and Freda Afari. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for an excellent, excellent uh, book.